This has got to be the saddest Easter that we have ever shared together as a church family. Uh, so much of what we love about Easter is taken from us this morning. We can't see each other. We can't put on our best outfits. We can't have a big feast together. Uh, what I want to focus on today and point you to is the best thing of all about Easter Sunday, best thing of all about Resurrection Day, that cannot be taken from us. One thing we have left this morning we can celebrate, and that's the great hope that we have because of the resurrection. If you will, open up your Bible to Psalm 16. We're going to read through that in just a moment. This is a psalm that is written by David, by King David. Uh, we don't know if it was before or after he became king. Uh, much like last week's psalm, he's in a situation of great mortal danger, and we don't know much about it. It's tough always to tell which one if it doesn't just tell us, because he was in so many dangerous situations all throughout his life. So we don't even know if he's king yet when he's writing this. But we do know he's in great danger. We know he has a great and even audacious confidence in that danger. And we are going to look at the promise God makes to us and the great hope and confidence we can have on this day as well. So first I'm going to unpack for you after we read it uh, what these words meant to King David based on the promises God had made to him. And then we'll look at what the words mean for us as we say them based on the promises that Jesus makes to us. So here's what he says. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's great hope that David has. Now, this whole thing, it kind of crescendos at verse 10. Verse 10 is like the key to this thing. Everything else before that is just build up to just the audacious hope and confidence he has in verse 10. And what he says there, it's amazing. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the land of the dead, I won't get buried, or let your holy ones see corruption, that is my body will not decay. I'm not going to get buried today. What he's saying is, I'm not going to die today. Like He has full confidence he's not going to die in that current mortal danger that he is in. Now that's almost a crazy thing to say if God has not promised you that he will preserve your life in the current situation. But David had really unique promises that God had made to him as king of Israel and then as David himself later on at points that he could look to and trust in. And so he could say 
audacious things like this that even other Israelites couldn't say. Let me walk through first what the promise was that God had made to David. We see it in three different places. And then we'll walk through this psalm from David's point of view and what he can mean because of that confidence. Then after that, we'll talk about how Jesus is the real one that this thing is about and how Jesus has made promises to you that allow you to look at this same psalm and say the same things but mean different and better things as you say them. So, <clears throat> David's promise first. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, the prophet Samuel anoints David king of Israel. And to anoint him was to declare him the Holy One of Israel, the one set apart, made holy to be king over all Israel. And this comes with a promise. It comes with a promise of God saying, I have chosen you to be king. So he has it on good authority you will become king. And so for the rest of his life, until he becomes king, he knows one day he will be king over Israel. And so when the current king Saul hunts him and when he faces all sorts of other dangers, he's got this promise from God. You're my promised king. You're going to be king one day. And so he can face these dangers and know I'm not going to die here today because God's plan for me is to become king of Israel, and I haven't become king yet. So up until the point that he becomes king, he knows, he's confident that he will become king. So if he's saying this before he has become king, well, he knows he won't die that day because he's going to become king one day. Then he does become king. And then when he does, he can look back on Deuteronomy chapter 17 on the promises and requirements of kings uh, that are made from the Lord in, in covenant fashion that he's made with the people of Israel and the king of Israel. So in that 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, the Lord lays out, here are my expectations of kings. He can't take many horses for himself or many wives for himself, all sorts of things he can't do. And then some promises made to him as well. And later in that chapter, he says uh, the king, when he rises to his throne, is to do some specific things so that he may learn to fear me all of his days, right? He has to make a copy of the law. He has to read from it. Probably has to write that copy of the first five books of the Bible himself and then read from it every day. It's got to be approved by the priest. But the point is, through doing all this, he would learn to fear the Lord his God. And if he did that, it would be expressed in two ways. He would follow all the Lord's ways and he wouldn't lift up his heart above his brother's. And if he did that, it came with a great promise. He would reign long in Israel. And when he finally did die, he would leave a dynasty of many sons after him who would reign after him. So he is promised in chapter 17, David is promised once he becomes king, a long reign and a long dynasty if he would learn to fear the Lord and express that by walking in all of God's ways through his obedience and through the way he treated and viewed his Israelite brothers and sisters. He's got that promise to bank on. That gives him confidence too. And then later on, after he's been king for a while, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant promise to him specifically, just to David. And he says, David, to you, uh, I promise a house. I will build you a house 
that will come after you when you die and go to your grave and are buried with your fathers. Your sons will rule after you forever. And this is what happened. He died and his sons ruled after him and that son ruled after him and his son ruled after him. And this is finally fulfilled in David's eternal son, Jesus, who came from David's body uh, as a son and rules now all of the universe forever. So he's got that promise as well. So once he is king, he can look at danger as a young man and say, I haven't had this long reign that God promised me yet. And I know if I fear him and walk in his ways, I can have confidence that I won't die early as king, but I will reign long and my sons will reign after me. That's why he can say audacious things like this. So he is looking uh, at these words. He is saying these words, asking in verse 1, God, will you preserve me for I take refuge in you? You are my God. Will you preserve me? Uh, he speaks of his loyalty to the Lord and says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, right? So his loyalty is straight to God, right? His fear is in the Lord God. Then he speaks of the way he loves his brothers, right? He hasn't lifted up his heart above his brothers, but he says in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Right? So he's fulfilling Deuteronomy 17. Uh, then he speaks of those who are chasing after other gods, taking the name of other gods on their lips, offering drink offerings to other gods, and the sorrow they have because they're trusting in the wrong God. He says the sorrows of those who run after another god that they multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I don't pour out. I don't take their names, the names of other gods, on my lips. No, he says in 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my cup. He holds my lot. And so he can say the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places, that his inheritance is beautiful. Right. So he is following in the Lord's ways. He knows he's got a great inheritance that the Lord is giving to him. And he looks at the boundary, the way the lines have fallen, the way the coins are flipped, as you might say, the way things have shaken down. And he says, this has fallen for me in a really good and pleasant place. I've got a great inheritance. He says in verse 7 of his desire to keep the Lord's commands, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Right? He's saying, I am following in all of the Lord's ways. And the promise in God's law in Deuteronomy is that if I do that, I will reign long and my sons will reign long after me. So I know I will not be shaken. So he says in verse 9, he's glad, he rejoices. And that's how he's able to get to this audacious statement in verse 10, I'm not going to die today, right? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying there, I won't get buried and go in the ground today. I won't go down to the land of the dead today. That's what Sheol is. Uh, my body won't see either the pit or corruption, like decay, like my body's not going to decay in the grave when I'm buried. Not today. It's not going to happen. Why? God's promise is that I'm going to reign a long time. And so in the peace of that, he can say, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, fullness of joy in your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So that's the promise God had made to David. He was going to reign long 
and he wasn't going to die that day as a young or middle-aged man. He would die old after a long reign, and he knew it. Now, that particular promise isn't a promise that you and I have. God hasn't promised for sure long life to either one of us. And so we can't look at this psalm and mean the same thing that David did. No, David's writing of temporary salvation. God will save me from this very problem. But we have to look at verse 10, the key to the whole thing. And we have to say that ultimately this can't really be fulfilled in David, right? Uh, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see decay. Well, where, where is David right now? Uh, he is in the ground and his body has decayed. And so ultimately, this can't really be about David. And if it sounds to you like I doubt the scriptures when I say that, no, not at all. Actually, the Apostle Paul makes the same point in Acts chapter 16. He is preaching. He quotes this very verse, and he testifies to a group of Jews who believe this to be the word of God. And he says, brothers, let's face the facts here. David died and was buried, and we can say it with certainty. This verse has got to be about somebody else, ultimately, because David saw decay. And that is when he then points to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died briefly and was risen from the dead. His body never decayed, but he came back gloriously and in a glorified, resurrected body. So the New Testament's treatment of this verse is that it's ultimately about Jesus, who did not see decay, who was not abandoned to death, but rose up from the grave as we celebrate on this resurrection day. That's the way the New Testament looks at this. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus himself makes promises to you and I that allow us to look back on this psalm with even better hope. Not that we'll be rescued from the grave today, but hope beyond the grave. Here's what I mean. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, not only believing the facts and truths that he claims about himself, but even placing your hope for eternal life in him, that he's the one that can give it to you, he says, he makes that as a promise to you, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And then he says to different churches in Revelation chapter 2, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And later in chapter 2, to the one, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the one who conquers is the one who endures to the end, the one who is not just a believer in Jesus today, but continues to be a believer in Jesus through all the trial and tribulation of this earthly life and dies a believer in Jesus, the one who conquers 
Uh, we'll eat from the tree of life, that is, we'll be risen from the dead, live in this paradise that he is setting up forever, and have eternal life eating from the tree of life there. We'll not be hurt by the second death, won't be abandoned to the lake of fire to, to receive eternal torment. No, the one who believes in him will instead have eternal life shared with Jesus, risen from the dead. That's a great lofty promise. Now, this promise is made to those who conquer, to the one who endures to the end. And the funny thing is, the first time Jesus says it in John 11, he just says, whoever believes in me. And he doesn't put that, you know, you have to conquer all the way to the end. And in Revelation, he says it's to the one who conquers and believes all the way to the end. Uh, Colossians 1 says similarly that these promises are ours if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So on one hand, he says this promise is for those who believe in him today. And on the other hand, he says the promise is only for those who continue to believe in him. So, so which is it? Well, both are true because the people who believe in Jesus today are the people who will endure to the end. He promises, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the finish. So if you trust in Jesus today, God promises he will keep you to the end and he commands you, he exhorts you, hold on to the end. Like you have a promise in it too. He will hold on to you. You must hold on to him. And then as that happens and with your dying breath, you are praising Jesus Christ. You can have hope beyond the grave that he will raise you from the dead. That though you die, you will live and you will one day live in the body, in the flesh with Jesus Forever. That's the great hope that you can have and the promise that is made to you. So David had hope that in the short term he would be kept from the grave. And that's the audacious thing he says here, especially in verse 10. You and I, Christian, we have hope not that we'll be kept from the grave today, but we have hope beyond the grave that we will be risen from the dead one day. Now, David receives that promise as well, but he didn't have it articulated to him in the same way. And one of the beautiful things about biblical prophecy and poetry is that many times the Lord will say something that could mean two different things, and both are actually true. Sometimes one's true for one person and another is true for another person. Uh, we can look at this and say even loftier things and even greater things than David said. So let's walk through it again, and I'll show you what this thing means for us. We say, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, with confidence that the Lord will preserve our faith to the very end. Because we say, you are my God, and I have no good apart from you. We speak of our delight in the church, the love we have for one another. And Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Right? It's confirming that we're disciples of Jesus. The aching in your heart that you can't be with other believers today and how much that hurts you, uh, that is one small sign of the faith that God is working in you and the love for the church that he is developing in you. And so we say the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is our delight. The people that should be gathered right now in that sanctuary, those people are our delight and we wish we could be with them. 
We look at verse 4 to the world around us who chases after, you know, finding meaning and all sorts of things like work and pleasure and wisdom and things like that. Uh, and we look and we find our joy and our happiness in the Lord God and our protection and safety in the Lord God. And as the things the world trusts in fails them, and as the Lord comes through for us and promises us hope beyond the grave one day, we say, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God multiply, and their hearts break for them. Their drink offerings of blood we won't pour out, we won't take their name on their lips, right? We don't do that because our hope is in Jesus Christ. It's not in a, any kind of secular hope. No, it's in Jesus Christ. The Lord's our portion. He's our cup. He holds our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance, but our inheritance isn't here yet. We have a beautiful inheritance we are waiting to receive in heaven. And Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 say that we receive now the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as just a down payment on a future inheritance that we receive. We bless the Lord who gives us counsel, as verse 7 says. We, we have set the Lord before us because he's at our right hand. We won't be shaken in this terrible and dark hour. We are not shaken. Well, we can't even meet together as a church on Easter Sunday. We're not shaken because the Lord himself is still with us. Our heart is glad. Our whole being rejoices. Now, we have looked back on all these things that the Lord is doing in our hearts, right? Moving us to love others, keeping us faithful, all these kind of things. And we can say these are confirming God's promise to us, right? Who taught you to love the church? It was the Lord that moved that in you, right? That wasn't there in your heart before you became a Christian. Uh, who taught you to cling to the Lord in trouble? The Lord did that. The Lord taught you how to do that. He gave you a new heart that does that. You can look back and see God's work preserving you and keeping you, keeping the promises to work in your life and bear fruit in your life, and you know he's going to keep his promises in the future. And so you can say, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And what you mean is so much greater than what David meant. Uh, you don't mean that you're going to make it to the end of this crisis and not be buried at the end of it. You don't mean that. What you mean is that you've got hope beyond the grave, right? If your body does begin to decay in the grave and it's there for a day or a year or a thousand years or 10,000, however long it's there, the Lord will restore your body to a better condition than it is in now. You will not be abandoned to the grave, but you will remain there in God's hand, your spirit in heaven with Jesus to one day be reunited with your body, risen from the dead, never to see decay or corruption. And that is because the Lord has made known to you the path of life. And in his presence, you will find fullness of joy. At his right hand, we will find pleasures forevermore. Instead of decaying forever, what you will find is pleasure forever at the right hand of God. That is the hope that we celebrate every Resurrection Day. And this year, we don't get all the wonderful signs of it. We just get to talk about it. Uh, but the hope I want to give you is that all the things you're missing right now are just a prefiguring of what will happen at the resurrection of the dead when Jesus comes back. Uh, what, do you, what do you miss most about a normal Easter, about a normal resurrection day? I'll tell you what I miss. Last year, 
we had an awesome Easter breakfast. So it must have been 200 people there. It was just fantastic to see everybody together. We ate all these great eggs and sausage and bacon casseroles. We just feasted all morning. And then everybody with the gladness of the feast walked down the stairs and went into our sanctuary and we worshiped together. That feast is one of the highlights of the year for me. And we don't get to have it this year. And uh, I've talked to the kitchen people about it and I mourn over it myself and they're mourning over it too because we all loved it so much. We don't get to do it this year. Um, but at the resurrection of the dead, uh, there will be there a feast. And the food there will be better than anything that we can cook and prepare in our kitchen here, better than anything you can make in your home and bring in and put in a casserole dish for us, better food than that that we'll all get to enjoy together. That Easter feast we're missing today is just a small just foreshadowing of the feast that is waiting for us in heaven. I also miss getting to see everybody. Probably my favorite thing about Easter normally is that everybody comes. Now, on a normal Sunday, almost everybody comes, but there's always somebody who's sick and there's almost always people who are out of town. And so we're never like all here at the same time, but everybody makes it a point to be there on Easter. And so you get to see like the size of the crowd and the face of every single person that you know in church all at once. And the singing is more robust because there are more people in the room and we lift up our voices together. There's a confidence and the, the, the musicians know that this is like the one day when they can just rip and play as loud as they want to because the people will sing loud enough to keep up with them. Oh, it's just fantastic to have that big group there. And uh, here we are sitting in a room with, you know, our families at most instead. Um, we, we miss that, right? That's mournful. But the gathering of Easter and the joy of that is just a small picture of what's coming at the resurrection of the dead when Jesus gathers us all together. Not just our local church body, but those who have died before us and all the churches around the world, every believer that has ever lived, all of the Old Testament saints and even King David himself, all of us united together in a grand gathering, singing in resurrected bodies that we can just assume are going to be able to sing way better than any of us can sing now, joined with a chorus of heavenly creatures just exalting Jesus Christ in song. That's what's coming to us, and that is far better than the gathering that we are missing today. Uh, I wonder if you miss you know, the, the outfit you were planning on wearing today. Maybe you're gathered around your kitchen table in your Easter Sunday best. I don't know. Um, maybe you're wearing PJs. Who knows? Uh, but one of the fun things about it is a lot of people buy new dresses and new ties and new outfits for, for the whole thing. And you get to wear it on that day. And, and not only that, you get to see everybody else in their absolute best. I love that about it. That's not wicked materialism. That's not bad. That's not consumerism. What that is is a prefiguring of what's going to happen when Jesus gathers us again. Uh, it says in Revelation that we will be clothed in white, that we'll be clothed in pure white garments, and that the righteous linen that we're wearing is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so in some way, excuse me, we will be clothed in righteousness, in some kind of like supernatural righteous garment that we can't really fully digest the literal meaning of that symbolism. But whatever we will be clothed in that day 
will be better. You think you've seen people wearing their best now, and you think you're missing that now. You are missing that now. But that's just the best you've seen so far. Whatever will be clothed in in this coming kingdom after the resurrection of the dead is better. And so all of the things that we miss today, uh, they're just signs of hope. Better things are coming at the resurrection of the dead, and that is the great hope that we have today.